Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. On today's show, recorded on August 13th, 2020, I had the pleasure of speaking with Ken Bernstein, who's the CEO of Acadia Realty Trust, a retail property investment company that has dual business platforms, both a long-term hold within the traditional REIT platform and a value-add institutional fund business that enables the company to view value creation in both longer-term and shorter-term investments. The conversation with Ken was fascinating as we spoke about what he called the retail Armageddon, which for sure predated and will outlast COVID. So while we had some conversation focused on coping with COVID in the retail space, we really focused on the long-term transitions and challenges in retail, again, well-baked before COVID amplified and modified those trends. Ken's company does street and neighborhood retail and does not really touch malls. So we'll wait for a future episode to think about the, may I not overuse his word, Armageddon, in the mall business, which is really one of the most visible headlines in the press about changes affecting real estate. For me, it's fascinating to have these deep dive conversations with leaders in the business about the long-term changes and challenges in the real estate landscape. It's clear to me that the pivoting in both the retail and office sectors might be the most fundamental among the real estate food groups. We'll keep going there, exploring those subjects on Leading Voices. Next episode is a follow-up conversation and full interview with Tammy Jones, the CEO of Basis Investment Group. Tammy was one of the six black leaders I interviewed post-George Floyd in a special episode a few months ago. Tammy and I will continue that conversation and also talk more fully about her business at Basis Investment Group and her career journey. I hope that you're enjoying and gaining value from listening in on Leading Voices. As always, if you have feedback or ideas for the series, please respond via our LinkedIn post or to me directly at my email at matt at Would love to hear from you. Also, please subscribe and share your favorite episode with a friend. That's easy to do from either our podcast website or from your podcast app. Last comment on this episode, Ken and I were both recording from our mutual homes and his sound quality went in and out a few times. We tried to edit around it, but please be patient in the moments that might be a bit spacey. They're just momentary. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Ken and appreciate your listening in. First question, Ken, where are you physically and are you working from home, working from an office? It's for me, it's seven o'clock in San Francisco, so it's early in the morning. But for you, it's workday time. Are you home or at the office? How, how are you dealing with it? I am currently at home. Our offices are reopening in New York or have reopened. The majority of the team is still remote. And our hope is that right after Labor Day, we can get the majority of the team safely into one of our two key offices, New York City, Manhattan, or our headquarters up in Rye. But we're going to really have to watch carefully all the different factors that, frankly, all of us are watching. Schools, where the science takes us, and what we can do to make sure the team can operate safely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I want to come back and talk about kind of companies and culture and how you keep that going in a time like this. But let's start with the elevator speech. Ken, what is Acadia Realty Trust? Who are you? And kind of what's your perspective on the retail business, just to get overall sense of it, and then we're going to dive in across the board. Sure. So Acadia Realty Trust is a publicly traded REIT focused on open-air retail through the United States with two key areas of differentiation. One is we operate under what we call a dual platform, which means publicly traded REIT with a core portfolio of wholly owned assets. And I'll get into that in a second. Mm -hmm. And then the REIT is also the sole general partner of a series of investment funds, real estate investment funds, more in the private equity style. Uh, and we've been doing that for almost as long as the 20 years we've been public. And those series of funds enable us to do a broader variety of opportunistic investing. In terms of the core portfolio, the other area of differentiation is Acadia has a concentration of assets in street and urban markets in the key cities throughout the United States. That obviously has COVID implications, mm -hmm. but along with 
about 40% of our portfolio being the more traditional suburban open air. 60% are on the key streets in Washington, D.C., so M Street in Georgetown, in Manhattan, in Boston, in Chicago, in San Francisco, and L.A. And those have, over any extended period of time, provided superior growth, but during a period of COVID, also an increased level of concern as we have seen how these cities have had to navigate through COVID. Mm -hmm. Great overview. And just drilling down on a couple of the different things that you said, if you have your private equity funds, are the REIT longer term hold, kind of hold forever or hold long term and the stuff in the funds kind of come in and out or no? Yes. So while the REIT will sell assets periodically and our portfolio has changed pretty dramatically over the 20 years that we have operated, the thought there is we're looking for long-term growth Mm -hmm. and owning assets that we're prepared to own for an extended period of time. Conversely, in the funds, it's really a buy-fix-sell model where perfect world, we're owning assets anywhere from three to seven years and where we're looking for opportunities that the market may be missing. So buying out-of-favor assets that might not produce the long-term growth that we're looking for, but that give us opportunities in a shorter time period to provide those kind of returns. Got it. And talk about the types of assets that you have, particularly, I'm so curious about the 60% in the key streets. And I look through your portfolio, having lived both in DC and San Francisco, Union Street, Fillmore in San Francisco, particularly DuPont Circle in DC and Georgetown. Those are the assets I know and understand and I've walked by a thousand times. How have they performed in COVID and how have they performed relative to other retail assets? Sure. So the easiest way to think about, and this is within our core portfolio for the most part, Mm -hmm. although there are overlapping assets. So in our funds, we have owned in DC and in San Francisco and elsewhere. But what you're referring to specifically within the REIT The 60% that is urban or street, M Street in Georgetown, or Fillmore Union, or a variety of these other streets, experienced significant rental growth, significant retailer demand in the 2010 to 2015 period, and we certainly enjoyed that. And then for a variety of reasons, having nothing to do with COVID and everything to do with the so-called retail Armageddon, they experienced some real headwinds and owner operators had to be very careful about what they were buying, what rents, what expectations for the tenants. So thankfully, we were able to navigate through that tougher period. And thus, what we have seen for the most part are those retailers that are working their way through the retail Armageddon, and now through COVID, still recognize the desire to be on these key streets. We'll get into what the lockdown means in a second, Mm -hmm. but M Street in Georgetown or a variety of the other key streets in the country Mm -hmm. are still very important for up-and-coming retailers. They're just very challenging for retailers who either – are struggling or have overstayed their welcome or have not really figured out how to differentiate themselves. That's created a supply and demand problem, so there's more vacancy than we'd like to see, and that needs to get refilled. That's the street retail piece Mm -hmm. of our street and urban. Let me just explain the urban component. City center in San Francisco, so maybe somewhere near where you Mm -hmm. live, target-anchored property where it's on um, Geary Boulevard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And those kind of assets that feel more like shopping centers in the middle of cities are also a large component of what we own. We have target anchored properties like that in San Francisco, in Chicago, elsewhere in the country as well. And all of this is important now that we talk about COVID. So when COVID hit, when tourism in many of these key cities has been dramatically curtailed, mm-hmm. when stores were closed either by law or because the stores, the chains themselves, deemed it appropriate and safe to, the safe and rational thing to do is to close their stores. Boy, that's obviously very tough for the retailers, very tough 
for landlords, and we are working our way through this. And I think it would be fair to assume that while social distancing is in place, mm-hmm. that it's going to be, let's hope it's a slow and steady climb back, but we all have to be aware that until we have better treatment and vaccine, and I'm hopeful on both, but until we get to that point, it will be a slow and steady climb back. Conversely, the essentials, you know, Target stayed open throughout the pandemic mm-hmm. and has done an incredible job. So that component of our urban portfolio has not only performed better than the street retail, pedestrian-friendly retail, it's performed better than our suburban because of the nature of the density, as well as it just doesn't have as many satellite tenants, and it has been critical to fulfilling the needs of the local communities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for a retailer like that, they also sell online. But in the online, does the fulfillment, because this is a technical retail question, but does the fulfillment of online, if people pick it up at the store, does that hit your income counting? So that is not only a technical question, it uh-huh. is an existential question. <laughs> uh, not, not how it gets counted. Uh-huh. Frankly, we don't often have that type of a lease structure where we are sharing in revenue such that if it's ordered online and picked up at the store or returned from the store, it impacts the rent. Mm-hmm. That is more of a phenomenon in enclosed malls. Right. It may creep into mm-hmm. the dialogue, but here's the existential piece of this. For the majority of retailers, there are some very important exceptions, but for the majority of retailers, what we've seen as a result of this crisis, but also as a result of the rise of online and a whole host of other factors, is omni-channel is the future. Mm -hmm. What Target has said publicly pre-COVID is that their online business is growing dramatically, but the profitability of Mm in-store is much stronger, Mm -hmm. and the incremental cost of delivering from a distribution center to your house, Mm -hmm. that incremental cost takes much of the profit out. I'll defer to Target to determine what that is. However, when they can fulfill from the store, so you buy online and they fulfill from the store and still ship to your house, it takes something like 40% of that incremental cost out. When they can convince you, buy online, pick up at store, Mm -hmm. it takes 90% of that incremental cost out. So these stores are critical to the retailers as they look for a pathway to profitability in the growing online segment. And I think Target has done a fantastic job of that integration. Now, IS Target's our largest tenant throughout our portfolio in each component. But I have used their online, the alternatives of, hey, you can go pick it up this afternoon in the store. And when we say pick it up, you don't have to walk into the store. They now have the ability to put it right into your trunk for you, or you can get it delivered, or you have other alternatives as well, including returns. The reason I say existential is this is going to be critical for so many different retailers who have seen that their online sales help them get through the shutdown. Mm -hmm. And so let's dive into this a little bit more and talk about it outside of your portfolio, but talk about the headlines about retail. And I know you were president or chairperson of ICSC, so you can talk about your whole sector to which your business is going to get targeted no matter how you look at it. So let's think of big picture retail and what you just said was the retail Armageddon and what does that mean? And maybe we're talking about it right now in terms of this omni-channel stuff, but just kind of think about the different segments of retail, the headlines of it, is retail dead, which is too crazy a headline. You always have to drill down. So what does all that mean? And then we'll put your business in context of that. So thankfully, I was chairman, not president of ICSC. Uh, chairman <laughs> is a, a fun job. Being president of a trade organization is a tough job. Thankfully, we have a very good one. But it did give me a chance to mm-hmm. talk to a variety of retailers I otherwise wouldn't have and landlords and great place to share ideas. Mm-hmm. So we are still in the relatively early innings of 21st century retail. Mm -hmm. What had happened prior to the 21st century, prior to the growth of online, Mm -hmm. 
was frankly an overexpansion by way too many categories throughout the world, but certainly throughout the United States. Mm-hmm. And at the time, neither landlord nor tenant nor other stakeholders fully appreciated the level of overexpansion, mm-hmm. whether it be apparel or food or a variety of things. And so we woke up a few years ago with a variety of different businesses that were overlevered, whether it was because of private equity or overexpanded and too much ubiquity. Mm-hmm. And the consumer was given a choice, and the choice was pay the same price for a while, don't even have to pay sales tax, Mm -hmm. and get it delivered to your home for free. Well, that value proposition is kind of hard to beat. It took a decade of hard work by ICSE and others to get the rebalancing the fairness on sales tax, That's just being implemented. Mm. The Supreme Court had to rule so that local jurisdictions could collect the sales tax. So that has abated, but still free delivery is viewed by my kids' generation as a constitutional right. Mm -hmm. And when we say free, it's not free. And I'm not going to get political about the post office or this or that. It is being subsidized by someone to a large extent. It's investors. Because the ability to grow market share for the last many years, including till right now, Mm -hmm. has been more important than growing EBITDA. And thus, a variety of retailers have grown their online business, even if there's no profit in it right now, because, one, they want to be there for their customer wherever, whenever he or she wants. Two, the collection of that and the ownership of that data is a critical component. And three, because so far investors are supporting that thesis. So online's growing. It will continue to grow. It is of huge convenience. However, watch FedEx, watch UPS, watch cost of shipping, and you're already seeing signs that they're going to have to charge more. Mm -hmm. Watch retailers induce you into the store. Post-pandemic, probably won't be that hard because we're dying to get out. But, hey, if you could save $10, pick it up. Right. So It's interesting. I'm listening to a podcast called Land of the Giants, and the current season is all about Netflix, but the prior season's about Amazon. And yesterday morning, I was listening to the first episode on Amazon when they talk about the creation of Amazon Prime, the most addictive <laughs> thing in the history of the world. And it goes yeah. right to the point that you're talking about, and you're a fixed asset against this thing that's growing like the network effect, like weeds, and you're going to go through a 10, 15, 20-year transition from one model to the other, but you have some, you have some bricks and mortar that doesn't move very easily. So here's the glass full side of that, and I don't want to pretend that a variety of our retailers are not facing significant challenges. And as we've seen with the bankruptcies, many don't get to the other side. Mm -hmm. But there is no business model that is more profitable than having bricks and mortar as a piece of the overall pie. Mm -hmm. So don't be surprised to see Amazon have more and more physical real estate you can walk into. Of course. And certainly don't be surprised to see other retailers who may have started online, what we call digitally native, think Mm -hmm. of Warby Parker, Mm -hmm. continue to roll out stores Mm -hmm. because customer acquisition cost is very expensive online. Customer retention and loyalty for anything other than price is really hard online. When you can, and it's not an easy business, but when you can have a product and sell it through a store, you have many more avenues for upselling, many more avenues for profitability. Pointed out, there's a bunch of retailers who may not be able to make that transition, and that creates a supply and demand imbalance. And thus, we, as Acadia, as a landlord, want to make sure we own the kind of real estate that can be either turned around or sustained through this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hence, you want to be at DuPont Circle, or hence, you want to be at Fillmore and Union, because the value of that location doesn't change, it may be that the retailer may change. That puts you in a very dynamic business. Yes. What we call barriers to entry, what 
we think of as supply and demand can make a difference. It doesn't mean you're immune. And boy, we have seen that because when iconic or formerly iconic retailers go out of business, Mm -hmm. you can feel it just about anywhere. But in general, in the United States, we're Mm over-retailed. A lot of the retail that you may have visited five or 10 years ago will not be retail five or 10 years from now, maybe five months from now. Mm -hmm. And so we want to try to own the stuff that will not only survive, but thrive. Mm -hmm. And talk about those iconic retailers. And the headline of this week is Brooks Brothers. And boy, I've been shopping them before I wasn't working from home because I kept buying shirts for a while online, (laughs) which was, but it was online, of course, right? But talk about the symbiotic relationship between the retailer and the retail shop like a chain like that. And what happens in the recap of that? And Simon is buying into it or however that works. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I won't conject on what may or may not happen with a specific retailer like a Brooks Brothers, mm-hmm. other than it is a cautionary tale that even the most iconic of brands for those of us who very likely went to Brooks Brothers to get our first suit yeah. when we were going out for our first interviews, that even the most iconic brands, if they slip into ubiquity and overexpand and do not stay relevant, it can be really tough. And yeah. I don't want to second guess merchants who tried things and failed because it's a very tough, tough business. But obviously and unfortunately that happened. And for far too many retailers who were forced into the, especially on the apparel side, mm-hmm. where We know even today, and we can get into this, scarcity attracts attention and attracts a consumer. So if you have an item that is viewed as scarce, limited supply, the consumer responds to that. Conversely, if they think they can buy that same shirt anywhere and always at a discount, that then has created the malaise that on the apparel side, retailers are having to work their way through. So my hope is you've got a lot of smart people out there, and as they try to reinvent these companies, they will focus more on curation. Mm -hmm. Because if you have a scarce pair of Michael Jordans, my gosh, I can't (laughs) imagine how much those trade for, but you've seen, and the list goes on and on. It's, It's not just sneakers. It's not just certain handbags. It's not just certain watches. The notion that the next generation is not interested in paying up for limited supply just has not played out. Uh, We are seeing that demand. Uh, But where you have fast fashion, where you have ubiquity, where you believe you can always buy something like that Brooks Brothers shirt you were referring to and had a set price in your mind and you think, if anything, that price goes down forever, Mm -hmm. uh, well, that creates the malaise that we had to work through. And my guess is our industry is well on its way to figuring that out and, and, and getting through it, but not without some pain. Yeah. Well, well on its way, that, that could be three, four, five years. So that 10 years, that takes a long time. And you're, again, symbiotic with retailers of, of every type in the business that you do. Sure. So if what you're saying is you want to see this happen in six months, that's <laughs> not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Um, it's life. But, but Mind you, you know, <laughs> we packed our bags for two weeks of a lockdown, and what are we in, month six now? So I think, if anything, we have learned a level of patience. This will take a while. Mm-hmm. That being said, yeah, J. Crew had bankruptcy, had overexpanded. They will curate their portfolio, hopefully, and I'm rooting for them that they figure it out. But under the J. Crew umbrella was made well that had not overexpanded, that has a value proposition that, on my guess, is continues to expand. I mentioned on the digitally native side, Warby Parker, mm-hmm. Bonobos. If you do not have a pair of Allbirds, full disclosure, they're a tenant of ours as well, <laughs> go get a pair of Allbirds. And again, they don't care. Buy it in the store, buy it online. It's all the same to them. But if you're on Armitage Avenue in Chicago, that's our store. There are so many exciting brands. They're not going to backfill all of the real estate in the United States. 
and they're certainly not going to backfill it over the next two years. But there are enough exciting reasons for retailers to want to be in a lot of these locations that it will create some amazing buying opportunities Mm -hmm. for those of us investing. Mm -hmm. It will take years, Mm -hmm. good, Mm -hmm. because we're not looking for three-month turnarounds. As I mentioned in the beginning of this, if something takes three to five years and we can show strong growth during that time period, that works just fine for our stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. So the conversation we've had largely, except for the very beginning, has been about the retail Armageddon and the change in retail. It hasn't been about COVID. So talk about COVID and did COVID speed up this process? Did it interrupt this process? When we get to the end of COVID, are we right back in the same transition or is it a different transition? Yeah. So I suppose we can all start. It's morning for both of us still. So we could start drinking games, but not today of every Mm -hmm. time you say unprecedented acceleration. You got to take a shot of your favorite tequila. (laughs) Um, So I, I will probably say a bunch of things now that are worthy of 10 or 20 shots. So COVID, amongst other things, has been a massive accelerator. Thus, if you went into COVID on weak footing, you probably got weaker unless you were in the supermarkets or essential piece of this where you got a result to the positive. Mm -hmm. But along with that, it's been a massive disruptor, to your point. So even strong retailers who were reliant on density, reliant on tourism, reliant on sit-down dining, movie theater experience, gyms, etc. Massive disruption. However, if they were strong going into COVID and if they managed their balance sheet intelligently, and many, many of them have, then once we get to the other side, those that were strong going into this, the majority of them will do fine. It may take a couple of years to get back, but I am hopeful that we're going to have to manage through this winter, and it's not going to be easy. We could spend the rest of the conversation talking about all of the headwinds our country is facing, including a health crisis, but not just a health crisis. Right. And then we would need to take even more shots of tequila. <laughs> um, but we're going to get through that. And then on the other side of this, there may be fewer restaurants, but boy, are we going to want to go to them. And... There may be fewer gyms, but we're all going to be in need of them. And there is nothing I have seen as we have reopened as an economy in some areas. There's nothing I have seen in my portfolio other than pent-up demand to return. So areas of concern for disruption as a result of COVID, but those folks, I think, will do fine when we get to the other side. And then as it relates to the accelerant, yeah, if you were on weak footing, heading into COVID and you thought maybe you had two or three years to figure it out, it's been two or three months. And so many of those folks have been forced into bankruptcy. Some will get out on the other side and will refine their fleet and refine their business model and others just won't. And that's sad in the context of a health crisis and an economic crisis. It's just one more very sad component of what we're all going through. Mm-hmm. We've talked about retailers a lot. You've used a lot of examples, but you haven't used examples of restaurants. And I'm guessing within your portfolio, a lot of restaurants are one-offs or part of a chain of 10 or 12, maybe even not the same name restaurants. How do you deal with that? Because their margin of error is really different than a Warby Parker. Different business, different model, and different partnership for you. Yeah, we, so we happen not to have a lot of those for a variety of reasons, some good, some not good. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you would complain, all the restaurants have been driven out of those key streets that we own in, I didn't chase them away, but we just happened thus not to have as many of them as tenants. I look forward to having actually more restaurants when we get to the other side. But the restaurant business, first of all, in general, it's always a tough business. If a friend calls you and says, I'm opening a restaurant, I want you to invest quickly disconnect your phone and apologize that you got cut off. Uh, It's a tough, tough business when things are really good. And when things are not, like in COVID, it's an impossible business. But 
on behalf of the so-called greedy landlords of America, realize the rent should be somewhere around 10 percent. And, you know, occasionally it can creep up, but somewhere in the 10 to 15 percent of revenue. Mm -hmm. And so while rents matter, it's just if you really sit with the tenant and understand the headwinds for them, first and foremost, was if they can't do robust sit-down dining, and if it's a sit-down restaurant, well, that's really hard. Then government regulation, then real estate taxes, then a whole variety of other things. But if a restaurant has been shut down during this crisis, or if the majority of its revenues came from sit-down and now it's only takeout, many of those restaurants aren't going to be able to pay us rent until they get to the other side. Mm -hmm. And if they're good restaurants, most landlords are working with those folks. Mm -hmm. But keep in mind, we're like 10% of the issue, not 50% of the issue. All of us have been eating at home more in the last six months than in the last six years. You see it in terms of the sales at the supermarkets. Some of us have become better cooks, but I don't know any of my friends who say, I like this better. (laughs) So a restaurant that was struggling on the way in may not make it to the other side, but those that can make it to the other side, especially once we get through this winter and pre-vaccination, there will be real demand for them. Winter's going to be tough because then takeout will continue, but outdoor, where where I live, there's a lot of outdoor dining. It was everywhere in the summer, but in the winter, that's going to die and we're still going to be there, I assume, in terms of the crisis. Yeah, yeah. The bigger issue. So, yeah, it's going to be a tough winter. You're in San Francisco. Any of the major cities have some very important political decisions they have to make of how do they navigate through this crisis Mm -hmm. in a way that enables a variety of businesses, but restaurants front and center, not only to get through this winter, but to be able to survive and thrive for the upcoming decades. And I hope our leadership throughout the country figures that out in a way that is supported by the broadest base of the community and works for the broadest base of the community. Uh, And I don't want to get political, but it cannot be done in a divisive way. But we also can't scare businesses away because then that creates even fewer jobs Mm -hmm. and even less real estate taxes and even less sales taxes, et cetera. These are tough needles to thread. So, yeah, I worry a little bit about this winter and it will be tough. We can get through this winter. What we need to make sure is that we're set up to get past once we get past pandemic that we're set up for all of these great cities to rebound and thrive in as inclusive a way as possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting. Uh, the answers are subtle. The answers are complicated. There, there's not a broad brush answer to the problems you're describing, and that will require a new kind of politics, which we both know. So <laughs> we'll we'll see what happens over the coming months. It's interesting. I'm on the board of a food recovery organization. So we pick up food from restaurants. We pick up food from grocery stores and we get them to nonprofits to feed hungry people. And during COVID, my heart has gone out to restaurants because their workers are the people who we worry about on the other side. And most of the workers are, you know, moderate income people. So these businesses really matter. And the ripple effect of their being unemployed is is just brutal. We're just beginning to understand what the recession will look like. And it's still early days. Uh, (laughs) And let's hope for as much progress as quickly as is realistic. But I think we all have a decent sense uh, that realistic doesn't include an easy winter. (laughs) And then let's demand of our leadership that they at least understand what the economics of a city and economics of a town look like so that we can then climb out and get to the other side. I am very confident that we can figure this out. Um, It's just not going to be easy. Yeah. It's it's interesting. One one of my uh, prior podcasts was with Amy Rose, and we talked about multifamily in New York City, and we talked about New York City as being essential 
to America, right? We need our great cities. It's a national, it's a global investment in the cities that we care about. And short-term thinking, you want to throw it away and say, oi, but that's not never the answer. So the answer is how do you then save the infrastructures of our cities that makes our countries work so well? Absolutely. And, and Amy's great and her extended family have been very philanthropic and very Huge. forward-thinking about all of these. We're all in this together. And the best way we climb out of this is together, which has not been the standard operating procedure in the last several years. But I, I implore everyone, we have got to look at the big picture and figure out how to climb out of and work through these challenges. And, and by the way, we have worked through these challenges in the past. And there are roadmaps for it, New York City after 9-11, a variety of other instances. But there are real challenges that do not lend themselves well to petty fighting. Mm-hmm. Let's change the subject. So let's keep let's keep moving. And this is a total change of subject. <laughs> so real estate's a transaction business, and it's an investment business. And we've kind of touched on that a little bit. But in these moments, how do you transact? Is there distress? Are you buying and selling, not just leasing? How does that fit right now? Yeah. So, I mean, first and foremost is leasing. And and there's just nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. There are times when transactional volume is low because there's a transition, and we're in one of those time periods. So we have not been doing much buying or selling because it's still early. Again, I was perhaps being a little frustrated in terms of government intervention, but the amount of financial accommodation, monetary and fiscal, the trillions of dollars that we have infused has at least so far prevented the wholesale foreclosure, wholesale push into the market of assets at pennies on the dollar. Now, if you're a buyer and we have an opportunity fund, oh, it would be great to see that, but the blood on the street would have been horrible. So I am in favor of and have and think it was smart to see the amount of stimulus that has come in. That has enabled lenders to be more patient, landlords to hang in there, and has slowed down the cycle a bit. My guess is over the next several months, you will start seeing some lenders taking the keys back and then thus selling assets, some ownership structure saying, I don't think I want to own this kind of stuff anymore, and selling those assets. Mm -hmm. And equally importantly, we'll have a sense of where rents are. It's hard to buy a pig in a poke at a mm-hmm. knowledgeable price if you don't know where the rents are. We're starting to get rental discovery, and that discovery only will increase over the upcoming months. So once you understand where rents are, once you understand where borrowing costs are, then we'll start to see transactions. It's interesting. When you were talking about finding a price, I wasn't assuming you were going to say rents. I was going to assume you were saying either cap rates as, as against income, you don't know, but the number of variables is too high. Maybe there is some opportunistic stuff going on, although I haven't heard much, and in retail, it may be the hardest. Yeah, it's hard. There will be, and we're in the middle of a bunch of stuff right now, but people are still guessing, mm-hmm. and once there's better clarity, because there are tenants, there are many tenants that are out there looking for new space. Not as much as any of us as landlords might want, but we're getting a decent sense of where the TJ Maxx's and Burlington Coats and the various other supermarket chains, and also certain up-and-coming apparel, what they can afford to pay, what they're willing to pay. And then once you get that sense, then you can apply a cap rate to that and what return you want. But otherwise, if you're just guessing from your basement, it's really tough. Mm -hmm. So another pivot in our conversation, the Leading Voices podcast is all about leadership. And we've done 70, 80 episodes, and we talk to leaders like you about their careers, about their career journeys, about their business, and about their place in the business in its sector. And so far, we've talked all about kind of how retail is coping in its midterm changes and how it's coping through COVID. But let's talk a little bit about you and how you got into this and where this is in 
and where your company sits in your business. And maybe the first question is, leadership is most tested in a crisis, and here we are. So when COVID happened, and you had to jump on change and jump on dealing with it, maybe you only thought it was a couple of weeks of change anyhow. But just talk about how that felt, maybe is a silly word, but how you responded, and then how you've evolved through that with your company. So let me take the opportunity and I love talking about real estate and everything, less so about myself, but I will give you a sense of background mm-hmm. just because I have been at the age of 58 through a bunch of cycles. Mm-hmm. So I started by accident as a real estate lawyer mm-hmm. in the late 80s. I say by accident because I thought I was going to do another kind of law, but the law firm in New York City I went to work for had an amazing real estate division and I fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. By 1990, I realized I preferred to be on the business side than the legal side. I enjoyed being a lawyer and joined a real estate startup just as the real estate market had collapsed, knowing just enough that get in at the bottom. So I started during what at the time was considered the worst real estate collapse in decades. And you learn a lot by watching companies that are iconic today that were insolvent back in the early 90s, uh, watching other companies rise, and that was very informative. Mm -hmm. We built that company on a private basis and then took it public in 1998. I had a partner at the time who was starting the business and had attracted enough capital that we could stay in business, and, and he was great at that. We were similar ages and was passionate. And so while we didn't have a lot of money, we had enough that we were able to rescue some deals, acquire some deals, and then attract institutional capital over the upcoming years. So what started with the backing of some high net worth individuals over the course of 1990 to 95 or 6 really transitioned into the backing of more institutional Mm -hmm. uh, endowments, foundations, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then in 1998, we took over a troubled shopping center in need of rescue and merged our entire company into that, and that created a realty trust. But the reason I point that out is within a few months in the late 90s, the REIT market collapsed. Our PO price of $7 and change Uh, The stock was down 50% within three or four months after we went public because that was the rise of the dot-com trend. Investors were not interested in dividends. Investors were not interested in retail real estate. That was the beginning of ocean of online sales. And it was a really tough time to be building a company. And from that, what I learned is you need to constantly – assess and reassess what your core values are and what your core strengths are, because that ultimately is what gets you through these tough times. And by doing that, I realized here's the kind of team I want to have, not just for the good times, but for the challenging times. And for each crisis, that has served us well. So we got through the dot-com crisis and then the bubble and then 9-11 had several good years of growth in the real estate business from 2002 to 2007. Then we had the global financial crisis. And again, another set of issues hitting from another direction, but with solid assets, good contacts and relationships in the capital markets, And then most importantly, a team who, frankly, were all scared senseless for each one of these. None of us had the arrogance to assume, oh, it will be fine no matter what, nor do I encourage that level of arrogance. But a team that understands we're in it together, Mm -hmm. braces you for where the next crisis and next challenges and then next opportunities show up. Mm -hmm. So when this one hit, you had that team, you had that experience, you had those muscles gained over each of those successive crisis times that we've, you just talked about. Yes, but. Yes, but. It had been 10 years since the last recession. 
Mm-hmm. And the majority, a big chunk of our team, either started just before the global financial crisis or during or just after, but the muscle memory of crisis had been a while. And we'll always talk about it in investment meetings and operation meetings, but until you're really there, people can talk about what hurricanes are like, but until you are in it, you don't really know. So the challenge is to make sure, especially when we were all forced to lock down and work remotely, mm-hmm. that we're reminding people that each cycle is different, but there are similarities, that your playbook changes crisis to crisis, but there are some pieces of it that remain the same in terms of communication and over-communication, in terms of focusing on certain urgent details and using a level of intensity to make sure you can get through that. And I have been very impressed with how the team overall has done, but also the new members who have never been through that kind of a cycle before, how they're rising to the occasion. So, Mm -hmm. so far, so good. Well, and it's an interesting question, because if you had said without the second half of the conversation, if you went through the first half, which was, I have a team, we've been through this cycle, this cycle, this cycle, this cycle, and that cycle, that suggests, this is an issue we have in real estate, that the team is all 55 to 65 in terms of age. (laughs) Right. And that comes with its own set of problems because you have institutions that have just been together too long and been together a long time is a good thing. Been together too long is not a good thing. So you have to mix that up. And so I'm curious how you find that balance within your company with the folks that have that level of age or institutional memory and then the younger group who's learning from you. So how does that dynamic work within your firm? So for a variety of reasons, coincidental or on purpose, Mm -hmm. Acadia has been getting younger every year for the last five years. Hmm. So we actually entered into this crisis with fewer of the original founders of the mid to late 90s than at other ICs. And that could have been reason for concern. But as I said before, I've been incredibly impressed because the original founders who may have retired Mm -hmm. over the last five years, Mm -hmm. they trained most of these people. And so while I may not be talking to my first CFO or my first CIO or my first general counsel, Mm -hmm. all of whom have moved on over the last five plus years, I hear their voices Mm. in our current leadership. Mm -hmm. We try to listen carefully. We try to make sure we're being as fair and balanced and forward-looking as possible that were true to our core values from the day we went public and I said, here are our four eyes, intelligence, intensity, innovation, and integrity. Hmm. And if you just stay focused on those and be true internally to that, not outside designations, but internally, are we operating with integrity first and foremost? Are we being innovative? So innovation requires a whole variety of other things. Intensity, intelligence, all of that comes together. And if we push that through within our company, then it should be a great place to work. So let's think about the balance between what's in your four eyes and the balance of the strategy of what Acadia does versus other retail REITs or other retail owners. But And then talk about that, kind of talk about culture versus business strategy in that. Right. So by having a dual platform, Mm -hmm. which is a differentiator, but frankly is also somewhat innovative. And it causes us to constantly rethink where are the best places to put money this year that we can then return that money in a profit five years from now. Mm -hmm. So there is some forced innovation in our fund business. During certain cycles, we have purchased a lot of real estate from retailers. So we're part of the group that bought Mervyn's, then bought Albertson Supermarkets, and Albertson's thankfully just went public, and that's been a huge success for us. We bought distressed real estate. We've purchased debt. We've done heavy lift redevelopments, constantly thinking about what's hot and what's not, 
mm-hmm. in a way that would be different than if we were just a standard publicly traded REIT. Mm-hmm. So that would be on the innovative side. Integrity, which I'd say is number one. We were talking about making the transition from being a lawyer to being a businessman. And one of the immediate ways I felt that we could differentiate ourselves from the pack was say, hey, we don't lie, cheat, or steal, which might sound so obvious, but in our industry, maybe less so. And so we have tried to hold on to the reputation and make sure our team members understand that our reputation is, guys, if you mistreat us, we will and are prepared to fight to the end on it. But if you treat us fairly, we will make sure we treat you fairly, that we will live up to our word, that we will bend over backwards to be reasonable because we believe that over time that will be reciprocated and that that will work out. So hopefully our reputation is we can be tough, but we're fair and we're thoughtful about it. We want to understand our retailers' businesses, our partners' businesses, so we can be empathetic and help come up with a solution. Mm-hmm. So that's integrity. <laughs> that's all of it. That's intelligence. That's intensity. Because if we need to get something done, if you say, hey, look, I got to get this done by the end of the week, I want to make sure we have the resources to do that, if that's realistic. And are we thinking through the different issues so that we are being innovative and using best practices for whatever it is we're trying to do? Uh uh And you said at the beginning of the whole conversation, at the beginning of this, is having the twin platforms of the longer-term hold core portfolio with more of a private equity portfolio alongside, that those disciplines help each other meaningfully in terms of how you have to do it versus a standard REIT, which might have a long-term hold portfolio. Yeah. And there's a lot of great REITs that have just one platform. And I think that can be great. And there's no one size fits all for where Acadia was in terms of its size and its core competencies. I felt being overly beholden to the public markets as the sole source of capital meant that there would be periods of time, like the period we're going through right now, where you cannot access equity, (laughs) and that there are periods of time where the best buying opportunities happen when your stock is not at a level that you can take advantage of those opportunities. So the dual platforms work for us at our size, works for us, Um, but that's not to second guess the other folks. And then on the opposite side, there are many opportunity funds and great platforms. Most of the private ones Mm -hmm. you have seen also create infinite life vehicles, whether they're private REITs Mm -hmm. or just core funds. So everyone is also looking for some portion of their capital to be so-called permanent capital. And thus, I like the fact that we have permanent capital, Mm -hmm. the public markets, and that we also have opportunistic capital for our funds. Mm -hmm. And any prediction going forward on retail or owning retail, this this is probably hard, and might you shift the sectors within retail that you're in over time? Do you see that changing, or are you making the right bets in terms of where you sit that way? I see it changing, but I can't tell you today what that means. And by that, I mean, just because something worked yesterday doesn't mean it works tomorrow. And we're constantly measuring that and figuring out using the information that we get from our retailers, the information that we get from our assets, what trends are we seeing? And so the thought that everything stays the same is inconceivable. But I do believe there is a place for high quality retail real estate. I do believe that retailers, while they're going to have many choices, are going to do more with less and choose high-quality real estate. Now, this will be a controversial statement. While retailers are going to use their clout to get attractive deals, rent is just one piece of the puzzle for them. And if you can offer them the best locations Mm -hmm. while they'll negotiate aggressively, I do believe retailers will pay up in an omni-channel world for the best locations and the best landlords and the best co-tenants and the best markets. 
And thus, we need to think about all of those factors Mm -hmm. as we think about what portfolios look like in the future. It's funny. We think about that in the different sectors. And I'd never, it used to be an industrial that the answer to industrial was the cheapest. It doesn't matter. It's all about rent. And it's not about rent because it's about transportation cost and time to get places. And your comments, the, the correct one on the retail side, obviously, which is location matters. Absolutely. Absolutely. The definition of location and what a prime location or prime configuration might yeah. be might change over time, but it is still going to be critical. Yeah. So we've been talking about a lot of different subjects. And during the crisis that we've had with COVID, the COVID crisis almost went away in national consciousness about two, three months ago with the George Floyd crisis. And now we have a social equity conversation that's top of mind. And every podcast, we should just touch on that and how you see that affecting your business and how you've responded to that. So long before this George Floyd murder Mm -hmm. came front and center of our conscious, this is an issue that we have seen time and again, but maybe didn't think about it carefully enough. And now we are all forced to. That being said, the easy answer, the easy platitudes Mm -hmm. are exactly what I was saying before we cannot do, Mm -hmm. because the very legitimate protests and very legitimate concerns about reform have also resulted in what the mayor of Chicago has pointed out was opportunistic anarchists Mm -hmm. and felons committing crimes, committing crimes either in their own communities or elsewhere. But she very eloquently said, this is unacceptable as well. And so we have, as retail landlords, we're obviously concerned about all of this, but we have an obligation as employers to make sure that we're being fair, that we're opening our eyes, that we're being thoughtful about all of this as owners in communities and parents in communities and citizens that we are thoughtfully dealing with this, not just for a quick fix tomorrow, but for the decades to come, but that we are also making sure that our streets are safe for everyone who lives there. And that's the real challenge with all of this. And we've seen it so quickly go from very legitimate, peaceful protests to opportunistic felons, that it's causing whiplash to too many of the communities. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be a struggle that we, as business leaders, we as parents, we as voters, we as U.S. citizens are going to have to figure out how we solve all of it. And I absolutely do not have the answers, but I applaud when we see a mayor like in Chicago the other day stand up and have those tough conversations. I applaud that. And I applaud the people who have stood up and said, we cannot allow any kinds of systemic injustice. And I applaud within my team, our company having very difficult and honest conversations. The last question on Leading Voices is always, if you were talking to a young person entering the real estate business, what would your advice be to them? So, and I could go on for hours, and thankfully for your listeners, I won't. What I would tell them is, if you want to enter the real estate industry as a owner, be prepared for cycles. And if you really don't think you have the resilience or desire for that roller coaster, There's a lot of ways you can stay involved in our industry, but that are less volatile. And so if you said, oh, I'm a lawyer right now, can I want to do what you did? Fine, but it's a roller coaster. So be prepared for cycles. And then the second thing that I'd urge them to do is really get good at what you do. Now, that sounds obvious, Mm -hmm. but for, (laughs) for a lot of kids who think, you know what, I don't really need to know my trade super well. Soak up while you can, as much as you can, learn, and that will pay dividends. It's interesting. It gets back to your four eyes as well. It's a long game in real estate. People think maybe you do a big hit, you make a lot of money, and then 
you're lucky and you know everything. But if you're going to be in a career for 30 or 40 years, then every word you said is true. It only works with deep, deep knowledge, someone who does soak it up, but then someone who also plays a long game in terms of integrity and relations. Absolutely. Real estate at its best is a get rich slow business. Good news is you get rich, but there are other places to get rich quick. Cool. Hey, Ken, I want to thank you very much for spending the time in this conversation. And I look forward to more and meeting you one day in person. Great. Happy to do it. Thank you very much. All right. Stay safe. Thank you, too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.